Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore MJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about the most fascinating topic in the world copyright and ownership. Are you protecting or overprotecting your precious TV <laughs> script? And I'd like to say up front, this is a disclaimer, we are not lawyers. Do not consider this professional legal advice, and there's every chance that we could get something wrong. So consult a real lawyer before making any serious decisions in these areas, and Alex and I and Paper Team will not be held liable for anything you do or don't do based on this advice. I mean, to be fair, well, at least I watched seven seasons of The Good Wife, so I feel like I'm a legal expert Basically a lawyer. Basically yeah. a lawyer. Let's <laughs> uh, put that on the degree and hang it up on your wall. Basically a lawyer from, <laughs> from Paper Team University. So, Nick, real quick, what is copyright? A very basic definition would be copyright is the law that gives you ownership over the things you create. But there are different rights within that banner. So if you have a copyright over something, a piece of original work, then you own all of these little bundle of rights, including the right to reproduce that work, the right to prepare derivative works from that, so adapting it to film or TV or theater, that kind of thing, distributing copies of the work, performing the work, maybe in like a live setting, displaying the work publicly, and so on and so forth. Practically, let's look at what copyright means. So basically, what you'll be doing is registering your work, i.e. your script, and put it on the public record, and you'll get some kind of certificate of registration. So as screenwriters, there's usually two common outlets for that. One is the Writers Guild of America, the West Guild, for their registration office. The other one is the Copyright Office, which you may know as the Library of Congress, but the Copyright Office is actually part of the Library of Congress. Here are the distinctions. The Writers Guild registration is $10 if you're a member, $20 if you're not, and it lasts about five years, and after that you can renew it for another five years. Now, the Copyright Office is actually about $40, and it lasts for your entire life, plus 70 years after that. Now, here are the differences between the Writers Guild of America registration and the copyright registration. The first thing you gotta ask yourself is, what is the point of copywriting? Why are you copywriting your script? The idea is that you have some kind of proof in case something goes horribly wrong and you have to go to court. Now, if Fox or whoever steals your idea or rather your show outright from you, then you want a way to enforce that. The WGA registration doesn't entirely do that because all it does is provide an employee to testify that you sent this specific draft on this specific date. But that still doesn't allow you to sue someone if you want to, because you can't just sue someone out of thin air. The case is copyright infringement, not WGA registration infringement. You need a legal claim. Exactly. I mean, the Writers Guild registration, all that does is provide evidence. You know, it doesn't provide a case to be had. In the event of a lawsuit or a credit arbitration, the WGA will have some purpose there. But again, a copyright registration is something that is legally binding. The big difference also in terms of the court outcome is that the copyright registration will allow you to get statutory damages and attorney's fees back, especially if you registered the work about five years prior to the case. And in my mind, $40 for that kind of lifetime protection can potentially outweigh the hundreds of thousands of potential dollars that you'd be spending because it's kind of like an insurance, but we'll get into that later. And if you're already a WG member, obviously chances are you also have guild recourses that go beyond copyright registration, like the WGA mediation program, which we're not going over here because it is not what this podcast is about. 
So let's jump into a few kind of common questions that you're probably going to have. So when you register something as copyrighted, what do you actually get? A big shiny prize? Or yeah, you get you get uh, a <laughs> something to hang in your office, right? Isn't that what <laughs> what we all dream of? I uh, know you just get a digital certificate, especially if it's the WGA registration. It's all kind of like a basic email. Mm-hmm. And also you get a registration number, like a fancy WGA number, one, two, three, four, five. Nick, uh, what should you do once your work is registered? Are you going to throw a party? You can sit happily with some peace of mind, but what you should not do is put that registration number or write a copyright symbol on the front page of your script. It looks amateurish. It's unnecessary. All of those things. Don't do it. I think our logo has a little TM on top of it just to show that we trademark Paper Team, right? Don't sue us, guys. Don't sue us. Sure. Do you have to actually like re-copyright things if you go in and change some words in your script? Like, How does that work? Usually, you only do it if substantial changes have been made to both the story and the content. So it's not just like a name change or anything, like a detail like that. However, if you redid the entire third act or if you redid a bunch of scenes, then it might be worth looking into it because, again... The copyright is only a temporary representation of this specific version of the draft. And I always hear about this thing where people are like, seal it up in an envelope and send it to yourself. Like, <laughs> is it, does that work? I mean, unless you're a CIA agent, but no, you can't copyright by mailing something to you, especially in the United States. I believe the UK, you could do that, but this is the US, okay? This is America. And in America- Fuck, this was America. <laughs> this is America. Randy and Marsh. you cannot mail yourself a script to get a copyright. This is America, Alex. You can do anything you, you want. Do it it ex- just won't copyright your script. Yeah, that, uh, uh, that is quite different disappointing and the reason is simple the reason is you want proof of something and something that's registered to the library of congress is obviously more official than postage stamp and again simply writing the copyright symbol on the front page also (laughs) does not automatically copyright your work that's not at all how it works that's not how it works at all the same thing for like websites that put copyright at the bottom of it that's not really uh copyright works guys exactly so moving on from that what actually falls under copyright what can be copyrightable well the gist is that it is not about the idea but the execution and if you want to read more about that just look at the copyright act of 1976 which is the one we're talking about here but again think about what things are copyrightable on a practical level meaning long format lines detailed pitches written pitches i should say and finished drafts not log lines not verbal pitches not core concepts not character ideas not plot devices not themes and not titles sorry paper team is not copyrightable damn it nick yeah so what we're trying to say there is if you come up with an idea like i think i want to do an action movie where a guy shoots some people from a helicopter and then jumps off a bridge and at the end he gets the girl like there's no way you can take that to a copyright office and then sue someone if there's ever an action movie that seems similar to that it's just not how it works again absolutely there's a thing called fair use and parody what do you think about that nick yeah so this kind of comes into play in comedy a lot and basically you're given some leeway for what you're allowed to include in your work which is usually the likeness of a famous person or brand or slogan or something like that that actually has a legitimate copyright on it 
And if you were to use that typically in a movie or something like that, you would need to clear that and get permission from the company in order to do it. You might even have to pay some fees to them. But when you're using it for the purposes of parody or certain kinds of comedy, when the intent is to satirize, the subject of the satire needs to be recognizable for people to get the joke. And we are afforded that freedom by the law to make commentary. So as long as it's not blatantly libel or slander, you're pretty much in the clear there, unless it's some kind of incredibly absurd thing like South Park depicting Kanye West as a gay fish. No one's going to take you to court over uh, that. Alleged gay fish. Oh, alleged I'm gay sorry. Fish. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what about book rights and life rights? So that's another interesting one. Here's the thing. Facts are not copyrightable. Fact. Uh, that's a fact. Yeah. You cannot copyright the fact that facts are not copyrightable because it's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get that on my tombstone. So historical and current events, as well as like the words and actions of public figures, people in the public eye, can all pretty much be portrayed on screen and in original work without an issue. You don't need Charles Manson's life rights to do a movie about him, as long as you stick to what is provable as fact. But if in that movie you make suggestions as to things you can't prove happened, like you say that he murders someone he's never been convicted of murdering, then you're opening yourself up to legal action. Hold on. Did you say Charles Manson or uh, Donald Trump? Alleged, alleged. Sorry. Now we're now we're getting into the live one slander here. (laughs) Copyright. (laughs) And then the deal with that is that like life rights, you've probably heard of those before essentially kind of ensure you against anything like that. They grant you access to things like private conversations that have not been made public, uh, journals, diaries. Sometimes it even allows you to take some creative license and freedom as to how things played out behind the scenes. This is a little quote about that from you know an actual legal website. When you buy the rights to portray someone in film or television, you're buying a bundle of rights. These rights include protection from lawsuits based on defamation, invasion of privacy, and the right to publicity. You may also be be buying cooperation of the subject and their family or heirs. And perhaps you want access to diaries and letters that are not otherwise available to you. So that's the skinny on kind of life rights. It is really important to point out that you do get this bundle of rights. And that is not the same across the world. That is not the same for certain copyright laws. And I think we can talk a little bit about how other countries and places on earth do uh, copyright. Because especially in Europe and maybe Australia as well, it is slightly different because the U.S. is a copyright-based system, meaning that when you sell your property, that is the end of that. The studio will hold that copyright, not you. Now, in Europe, you have what is called author's right, or in French, droit d'auteur. It's so much fancier, yeah. Droit d'auteur. Uh, <laughs> And the droit d'auteur is twofold. Firstly, you have economic rights of the work. In other words, property rights, which were alluded to earlier, such as transferable ownership of the content like any other property. These are ways for the author or the holder of the copyright to profit financially from the creation, meaning you can reproduce the work. Now, the flip side of that is the moral rights of the work. And that's the biggest distinction here. And that is the view that a creative work is in a way an expression of the author's personality. Therefore, the moral rights cannot be transferred to another person and cannot be taken away. Meaning even if someone sells a movie script to a studio, the author still holds that moral right. You know, it's closer to a licensing agreement. Australia is closer to how the European system works because it's based off of British law and that sort of thing than it is the US as well. So for our Australian listeners, you pretty much get these same guarantees as well. Yeah, it's pretty close to Europe, but uh, not geographically. 
And then there's also international production companies and productions that make this an even broader topic, which we don't have the time or resources to cover extensively right now because this is a TV writing podcast, not a legal show. This isn't Boston Legal? What? Ah, damn. I was damn waiting it. for the... Where, where, wait, is uh, David E. Kelly hiding under the table right now? <laughs> <laughs> So now that we've looked at what is copywriting, has copyright ever been enforced or used in television? Well, there are a few interesting cases, but as you'll see, it's kind of nuanced. So when people claim to have had their shows stolen or whatever, more often than not, they're claiming that people have stolen their ideas, which, as we have covered, are not copyrightable. The only thing that's copyrightable is the execution of that idea. Before, as we're talking about Fox stealing your show or something, if Fox just happens to have a similar show come up on the air to some original pilot that you wrote and scrolled away on your computer, you have absolutely no way to sue them over that because you cannot prove, A, that they have seen your work directly and were able to steal from it, and you cannot prove that necessarily the similarities are close enough that there's no way that they could have just come up with it themselves. Those are really the two broad kind of burdens that are on you to prove. There was actually a quite a well-known case about the show New Girl, where a couple of writers claim to have come up with a very similar idea called Square One about this woman who moves in with a bunch of male housemates. I think that's the extent of the similarities. Like one of the main character was a little bit quirky and like, you know, whatever, but they were all very common traits that could really be assignable to any character. They really should have copyrighted the word adorkable. I think that would have have given them leeway. So the brunt of their case was centered on the fact that at one point, somehow their script for Square One had gotten into the WME, the William Morris Endeavor Agency database, because like an intern or an assistant had done coverage on it. it apparently, it was favorable coverage. They kind of liked it. And so it was sitting on their computer system somewhere. And then later on, the clients of WME, who were a particular producer and showrunner, went on to create New Girl. So <laughs> their claim was that these people had found the script and then just like ripped it off from whole cloth and made their own show out of it. But when that case came to court, they couldn't prove that that showrunner or that producer had directly read the script in any particular way. And they also could not prove that the similarities were close enough in that regard. So that case was basically thrown out. But aside from that, has there been a successful lawsuit about a TV show being stolen, Alex? Well, there's this one recent example by this guy called Hayden Christensen, who you may know as Darth Vader. Wait, does that sound copyrighted? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. So Hayden, as we all call him, (laughs) this production company... (laughs) H-Dog. This production company, Forest Park Pictures, actually pitched a show to USC Network about a doctor who gets expelled from the medical community for treating patients who cannot pay, and then he himself becomes a doctor to the rich and famous in Malibu. And four years later, USA Network actually aired its own show called Roll Pains, about a doctor who gets expelled from the medical community for treating patients who cannot pay and then become a doctor for the rich, a famous in the Hamptons. Totally different. Totally, totally (laughs) different. Now, Hayden sued USA, claiming, this is still my idea. And as you might expect, the district court dismissed the case holding that it wasn't covered by the Copyright Act. Now, after appealing, the Second Circuit Court actually accepted Hayden's allegations and ended up ruling in his favor for a couple of reasons. Number one, the content that they were discussing was embodied in written works. Remember when he pitched to USA? Well, he pitched using written materials and an oral presentation at USA headquarters. 
Again, ideas are not protected by copyright law, but in this case, we are talking about a written extensive pitch. Now, the second reason is there was an implied agreement with USA Network that ended up requiring USA to pay for the use of that idea. The underlying agreement was that if USA were to use those ideas, they would be paying Hayden and his company and then claim that they did not use that idea. What ultimately happened was the court ruled that they did use those ideas and a monetary exchange ended up happening. Now, the bottom line is this. Even though that pitch was stolen and the court ruled in favor of Hayden and his company, the linchpin in this case were contracts and promises of monetary exchange, i.e. breach of implied contract, not copyright infringement. This was not about some random reader casually reading a script that they just received on their on their uh, inbox. Now, with all that said, when should you really copyright something, Nick? I think that one of the main instances in which it's a wise idea to copyright your work is when you foresee a situation where you can reasonably expect some contention over who holds the rights to an idea or an execution. For example, if you write a pilot and a producer wants to develop it with you, you should probably register that pilot for copyright beforehand in case you later get into a dispute about whose contributions were whose so that they don't just go off and try to sell it without you. But that's another point is whenever you enter into one of those relationships, you should always sign a clear agreement beforehand as to who owns the material and what rights you grant that producer for what period of time. For example, if you are giving them the right for 12 months to take it to studios and networks, and if they sell it, what the compensation for both you and the producer will be. And that's completely different from some guy asking you to sign their NDA just to read their spec pilot, right? Exactly. That's something you should never do, and it's absolutely (laughs) ridiculous. Uh, And the reason why companies ask for those release forms, and you may also encounter companies asking you to sign release forms, and that's just because they don't want to be liable in case something happens. It is not about someone being on the prowl for uh, stealing ideas from some unknown writer. Yeah, people get very suspicious of those forms. I have to make people fill them out all the time when we read people's work at my company. All those forms basically say is that they're agreeing to read your work. They're not buying it from you or anything. You keep all of the rights, but at the same time, you're acknowledging that they might have similar projects that are already happening and that if one of those goes ahead, you're not going to sue them and say, oh, you read my thing. And then you turned around and made it into a TV series. It's just freeing everyone of that liability. It's the same thing for fellowships and those programs and those contests where you submit respect. It's not because the TV show is, there's a dearth of writers that are just going to steal your idea. That's not what it's about. And in fact, really copywriting only becomes important when a project goes to a studio, as Nick brought up, it's when it's being sold. And that's when the real legal work comes in, especially with IPs like comic books, as we've been seeing with Marvel. Yeah, if a studio or someone is going to buy some work from you, you need to prove what they call a clean chain of title. So you need to prove that it originated with someone and then all the way down the line, you have airtight agreements, either transferring those rights onto someone else to be able to sell or, you know, that they still remain with that person and that there's an agreement going to be made. So if there's a shady history of who owns this property, people won't touch it with a 10 foot pole. So now that we've looked at reasons why you shouldn't really be as anal about copywriting your work, let's talk about this idea of overprotecting your ideas and not wanting to share. And firstly, there's this idea that people are going to steal your idea. Now, I'll just quickly quote this post by future friend of the podcast, John August, who 
10 years ago to the day, because we are releasing this episode on uh, December 5th, 2016, and he wrote this article, which will be linked in the show notes on December 5th, 2006, about this idea of idea theft. And he said, quote, get over it. No one wants to steal your crappy idea. So there you go. Honestly, Frank, your idea might be terrific, but the reality is none of the other aspiring screenwriters in your workshop are going to realize it's terrific because they're all busy working on their own crappy slash terrific ideas. (laughs) Here's some real talk. Nobody wants to steal your scripts or ideas, especially not legitimate working production companies, studios, and networks like we just said. If you have a great script, it's much, much easier for them to just pay you for it. If you have a great idea but not a great script, same thing. They'll pay you, they'll develop it, maybe they'll bring on another writer, but it's far less hassle for them than blatantly stealing your stuff and opening themselves to the legal consequences of that. It's strange that new writers have this inexplicable fear that their hard work or great script or idea is going to be stolen, but realistically, you are the least likely of anyone to have something worth stealing. And the same thing can be said about spec scripts, you know? You should be the least scared about sharing your work and this idea of theft because you're an aspiring writer. The writing staff of The Walking Dead is not going to steal your cool spec idea. If anything, if your idea is that amazing, then chances are pretty high that the staff who thinks talks, breathes the show 24-7, seven days a week, has come up with their own variation of your idea multiple times. And probably rejected it. And probably rejected it, yeah. And that's before even you thought about it. And, you know, even if your idea makes it to air, then just be content with this concept that you were maybe on the same wavelength as the writers, and then you should move on and write another spec. Which brings us around to the idea as well that everything's been done before anyway. Yeah, everything that has happened before will happen again, as Bellasar Galactica said to us. Mm -hmm. There really are no new ideas, only new executions of those ideas. There's also this concept of basically like unconscious plagiarism or copying. It happens in music all the time. There was a case between Coldplay and Joe Satriani, and Joe sued them because the melody to Viva La Vida was similar to something that he had written many years ago. And Coldplay's claim was essentially that they had no idea. Maybe one day they had heard it somewhere on the radio, and then it just popped up in their head again, and they believed that was a new idea. And that's this thing called cryptomnesia. Oh, wait, I think uh, that's Nolan's new movie, right? <laughs> yes. It's the uh, sequel to say. Memento. Yeah. But is it a sequel or a prequel? Because of the. Whoa. I don't know. So in music, there are only so many chord progressions. Like in story, there are only so many story structures. Eventually, you double up. And then there's just sheer coincidence. Like, you really think you're the only person who's had the idea for a loose cannon alcoholic cop struggling to get his life back on track? I mean, how many shows and movies have that? And they're not all suing each other. There's also the trends in pilot season. Like, this last year, there were three or four shows about time travel, some of them very, very similar. This season coming up, it's going to be all about tech and AI and virtual reality and futurism and stuff. So no one was sitting around copying off of each other's notebooks. More than one person can have the same idea. There are over six billion people in the world and we all get inspired by the same things yeah the same thing happens in movies you know you have like armageddon deep impact and it's a bug's life and even in tv you have a bunch of zombie shows a couple years ago with leovna the return versus abc's resurrection versus cbs's babylon fields 
again, it comes down to idea versus execution. Just because you have the same premise doesn't mean you will execute it the same way. Ultimately, you, you need to think about what risks are you taking by sharing your work or scripts? And again, this is not talking about projects in development and production. These are ones that you finish working or spec materials. And even thinking that someone is desperate enough to plagiarize your work is a bit presumptuous to begin with. Uh, because no one is going to bother with some unknown writer. Yeah. So look, here's the worst case scenario. Someone steals your shirt. They, what? they peeked what? over your shoulder in the coffee shop and they're like, this is brilliant. I'm going to copy it word for word. A, the chances of them actually doing something with it, taking it to someone, someone buys it, someone turns it into a pilot. The pilot is great. It gets ordered to series. The series is successful. It's so incredibly slim anyway from any idea. Even if all of that happens, great. Now you can sue them for your piece and they just did all the hard work for you. Secondly, if you had one idea good enough to steal, you should have 10 more where that came from. Just get over it, move on to the next one. If that was your only good idea or script and you weren't working on more, you have bigger problems for your career as a writer. And to jump off on that uh, real quick, TV, let's keep in mind, is a communal medium. You will be in a room with a bunch of different writers for hours, days, months at a time. And if you only have one good idea, then what are you doing writing TV? That is not the medium for you. So you should not be afraid to have just that one idea be taken away from you. And in part, that is why I wish writers were more willing to openly share their work. Writing can be such a personal affair, but again, TV is teamwork. We all end this together. And I think, especially when it comes to pitches and pilots and any kind of spec material, there is an educational opportunity. If you share your pilot, if anything, you may get constructive feedback from people reading your script. I mentioned in a prior episode that at one point uh, a few years ago, I shared this spec pilot for a spec Star Trek series called Star Trek Turan. And when I did that, I received dozens of emails, comments, and messages about the content of my script and people who had read my script, even though I did not ask a single person to do that, I just shared my material. And I think a lot of people are reticent to share that work because of the type of project that would be online. Since you can't just put scripts in development or in production, you'll end up, if you're a professional, you, you may end up with a lot of material that are considered failures. But there's a lot of those pitches that could help other people. Just look at the collection that Javi from Children of Tendu or even John August's website. They all share all those quote-unquote failures because on some level, not only is it just giving unproduced scripts fans what they want, but also it teaches other people what may or may not have worked. Ultimately, it's about sharing those experiences and that knowledge. Every writer has a different approach to the craft, and it's always a learning experience to read someone else's work, even fail pitches. So I encourage you to not be hoarding your work like you are a golem, you know, hiding their precious in a cave or somewhere, <laughs> you know? This is not a precious snowflake. It is just a piece of art that needs to be shared with the world. And here's a quick note. If you ever do write a really great script that gets a lot of attention around town, it's going to be shared widely. It's going to be passed around through all the agents' assistants, managers' assistants, production companies. This thing's going to go out and around, like if you get a script on the blacklist or whatever, like everyone ends up with access to this script. So you can't be that protective of it because on its way to success, it's going to be out there and it's going to be spread wide regardless. 
Yeah, I mean, there's been so many examples, especially in recent years, of those almost like stunt specs that got around the market. A recent example was this like Seinfeld 9-11 spec script that someone just posted, and now he's staffed on some comedy, right? He's on Family Guy. Yeah, that's that's how you get people's attention. Maybe we'll have him on the podcast someday. So now that we've looked at all these different forms of copyright and whatever, what do you think about this idea of copywriting your work if you're an aspiring writer? Should you do it? Should you not do it? I really think the chances of you ever having a serious claim to your work being stolen from whole cloth is so insubstantial that it's barely worth considering, let alone spending exorbitant amounts of money to insure yourself against it. So in my personal opinion, unless you foresee a clear situation in which you expect there's contention over ownership of your work, as we said, like co-writing, developing with someone else, working with a producer that's a little shady, I don't know, I would rather have that $40 for every pilot I wrote than a piece of paper I'll likely never have to use but that's your call feel free to play it safe if that's what makes you feel yeah i mean i'm of the opinion that usually it's better to be safe than sorry but again it depends on the people who are looking at your work if nobody of quote-unquote importance is going to read your work then you may not want to bother with 40 dollars. however 40 dollars for a lifetime of peace of mind could be a big difference depending on the way you think you know glass half empty versus glass half full i guess All right, so what are our takeaways from this week? Well, number one, know the difference between registering a script at the WGA and copywriting it at the Copyright Office, a.k.a. the Library of Congress. Number two, don't be paranoid. Honestly, nobody's going to steal your stuff, especially if you are also a nobody. And finally, sharing is caring. TV is a communal medium, and you may even get constructive feedback if you share your spec pilot. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode. As always, thank you for listening to us. Thank you for taking the time out of your day or your drive or whatever you're doing. We would love for you to please give us some reviews at paperteam.co slash iTunes dot co slash iTunes. And as always, I'm on the Twitterverse at TV Calling. And I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, opinions, copyright infringement, yeah, ideas uh, you want us to steal, <laughs> you can send all of them to ask at paperteam.co, that's co.com. And next week, as we both know, Nick, we will be talking about exposition. <laughs> <laughs> What is exposition, Alex? Well, exposition is what we're going to be talking about next week. (laughs) Goodbye. We'll see you then.